0: You're listening to the Podcast Detroit Network. Visit www.podcastdetroit.com for more information.
1: Welcome to M Squared TechCast. A live internet radio show offering the latest news and interviews with the people driving business, technology, and politics in Michigan. Now, your hosts, Matt Roush and Mike Brennan.
2: Hey, it's Matt Rausch. And Mike Brennan. And we're back with another edition of the m Squared TechCast right here at MITechnews.tv. Facebook Live and a whole
0: bunch of other
3: places. Yes, indeed. And so we have Lisa Kujawa on with us again from LTU because actually, I guess today is the first day of classes at LTU, and we're a uh, lot. Matt, take over from here, but I'm just sort of setting you up here. Uh, that uh, you know, a lot of colleges are going. Some of them are going all virtual. Some are a mix of virtual and in class. And we were chatting just before we began, and I think that's you guys. You're a mix, right?
4: Yes, we are. We're, so thank you so much, Mike and Matt, for having me. So Lawrence Tech today was the first day of classes, and our undergrads are here um, on ground in their classes. Some adaptability, uh, maybe if they're going to use Zoom, the instructor might. If they're going to have 40 people in the class, have 15 come at one point, the other Zoom and back and forth. The grads are all online with the studios and labs being on ground, and that's something we learned in the spring when we went online very quickly, that that theory and practice matters, that hands-on experience, so that's why uh, the grads actually wanted that to continue.
2: Yeah, and, and I think Lawrence Tech is in a little bit different place, isn't it, than a, a big state school, because... We don't have those big freshman lectures with like 400 people in them. Like the biggest class you're going to find at Lawrence Tech is what, maybe 25 or 30 people?
4: Yeah, great point, Matt. So what our people did, so basically we, we uh, the in March, we went fully online. And that was so easy for the spring semester because of the fact we're technological with our laptops, which is a huge advantage for our students. Um, and then we started to do everything virtually, we started to bring students back. And so yeah, our people went around to each and every classroom took the first row out social distance, the rest, there are stickers everywhere. So students know where to sit. We're not too sick. We have policies about masks. Our faculty are wearing shields. It's um, me, I apologize. And um The classrooms have been designated. If there is larger ones, then the the classes are being moved to those larger rooms. So everything actually has worked out perfectly well. Everyone's organizing and helping and supporting. And the most and the best is the interest of the health of our students and our staff and faculty. So I think all of that is moving forward.
3: And if someone no, no. should – I'm sorry, Matt, but if someone no, no, should ahead, get wait. sick, do you, are you going to make them quarantine, or what are you going to do?
4: So, yes. So, for example, we did have two students already. One was not here yet. One was here, so they're being quarantined. We have one floor in the residence hall for quarantine. We have an app now our students use um, that – and staff as of today – Gives us a perspective of, um, you know, did they test positive? Did they test negative? Do they have these symptoms? So we're monitoring that. The residence halls, when the students come to get their food, it's takeout only. Um, if they sit, it's still in a box, they don't get to touch everything. Um, and uh, we are working with the Oakland County Health Department related to trace and testing. So we have a variety of precautions in place. I think we started early and because the president really was pushing, making sure we can open because so many of our parents, both for new and current students, were emailing the president early on saying, please, please, please open.
3: Hmm. Was it just uh, because, I'm sorry, because it was just because uh, they would have to, what, manage the kids at home or something?
4: (laughs) So that's funny, Mike. I had a football dad who said, I told him, get in the car, you're going back. (laughs) but so that was one of it but the other thing was is that again you know i think everybody wants their moment and the parents want their kids back to get that moment you know to continue on the path whatever path they were in but they want it to happen with them socializing with them being educated here and so really um we're doing the best i think we're doing so great to further this commitment of ours to the students and the parents
2: well, and we've had some of our faculty members also heavily involved in producing PPE, right? I know the uh, the dean of the the dean of the College of Business and Information Technology. We've got pictures of him making face shields. Um, I've got one right over there, in fact. So, I mean, but but they've been involved and, and very active in this process, right?
4: Absolutely. So um, our accelerator, they started making face masks for people in and around the Southfield community, as well as business and industry, as well as Matt saying the dean of business and information technology, same thing. Um, Every college is adapting based on the culture to their uh, student, but at the same time with the idea that we have to social distance, we have to make sure we continue to maintain the health and that people follow the rules. And the president just walked around today, as he always does, and he said, I'm very happy everybody's everybody's doing what they need to do.
2: Good. Okay. So talk a little bit about the LTU Safety Committee. Uh, what is it? Who's on it? How often does it meet? What, what have those meetings been like?
4: So the president added the Safety Committee immediately in March uh, when the shutdown happened. And it's um, uh, people within the faculty ranks, um, within the administration staff, And so they've been working since then preparing for today. Uh, What do we do? So, for example, early in April, they went from each college and set a kind of um, specific style classroom for each college so that they could see how this social distancing effect would happen with their students. Then that's when we started making the PPE. We came up with rules, regulations, regulations. I think the best thing the president did was communicate every two weeks with not only our students, the campus community, our faculty, our alums to just keep that ball going down that so rumors didn't continue. this is what's happening, this is where we're going, this is why we're doing it. And he right. still do, he did one last email on Friday which was hey, we're in it together. Let's go, you know.
3: Now, Sounds did good. you uh, when when you guys were just totally virtual in the spring, did you learn What works and what doesn't work from that experience?
4: Mike, I'm so glad you said that. So first, we went virtual orientation for new students for the fall, okay? We're right now, for incoming freshmen, 13% ahead of where we were last year. And I believe one of the greatest things Zoom did for us was parents got to be with financial aid a lot longer and university advising a lot longer. And so that sense of how do I financially pay for this? What's the financial path for me? What's the courses my student's taking? How does that affect this and that? And I believe those two areas, in essence, supported our growth in FIDIACS.
2: Okay. And FIDIACS stands for? for Sorry. People like-
4: first time in any college so oh, no. my point was when you know when there were a lot of students in michigan saying i'm going to rethink my first choice when michigan closed last week we got maybe eight students immediately in three days from michigan because at the end of the day no matter what what the cost of education the experience has to be something that you truly truly want and it'll benefit you both personally professionally your mind you know um uh, the kind of character you want and overall what kind of person you want in a career. So, so I think the size, our size, how fast we adapted our communication benefited us immensely.
3: Well, I imagine you put the kibosh on parties and things like that, right? To know, I mean, how are you going to handle that? That is college after all, right?
4: Right. Um, So Mike, it's so, it's a great question. So the other day, Dr. Michael, as Matt knows, he's a walker. He likes to walk around and talk to people. So he saw like seven kids in the atrium sitting too close to each other. He, they were like, hey, Dr. Modgill. He walked down there. He went over there and he said, are you glad you're back? And they said, yes, we're so glad. Thank you. He says, okay, then we all have to do our part. You got you to separate here, move apart. And so his point to us was, it's everybody. All of us have to help each other. Otherwise, it can't just be this is the student's fault or this is our fault. So we're trying as best as we can to mitigate whatever happens knowing something is going to happen
3: college students are college students i I know what mine my days were like of course that was you know back when we rode dinosaurs but uh (laughs) i don't think that's changed all that much right?
4: right
2: right now from what i see it hasn't changed all that much but that that is one of the things we unfortunately had to do this fall was basically cancel all of the like big lectures and colloquia and other programs that colleges and universities typically normally do uh, because we can't have 300 people sitting in the auditorium I mean we we just can't so all of those events to the extent that they're going to happen this fall are going to be virtual and unfortunately we also had to put the kibosh on fall sports right
4: well some I mean it's just some of them are just going to be pushed back so we're still going to do it and 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 so the, the thing, the interesting thing is, too, again, you try to find these positive things, as Mike said, in this process. So one of the things was that we had our first virtual recruitment event for next recruitment cycle. We had a, 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 over 100 people on that. And frankly, Ooh. way more from states and countries than we ever had before. So these are some of the things we have to take advantage of and kind of go with in this process.
2: OK, OK. So, yeah, some some things are actually more convenient when they're online.
3: That's um, true.
2: Some, yeah, true. some things you want to be in person. Other things, you know, I think one of the things we've learned through all this is a lot of things can be done um, virtually. Nothing really replaces face to face interaction. But there are some things that really work well. In this meeting.
4: Yes, I agree. Absolutely. And now the other thing is just to be th- that that positive approach to looking at things, doing things differently. And and saying we're going to get to that. We're going to get to that uh, goal that we have. And so I think that's what we're trying to teach the students, too.
2: Well, and when it comes to football, frankly, I had somebody mentioned to me that it's going to be kind of nice to have it, the weather getting nicer during the season <laughs> if right. we play in the spring rather than having it getting worse throughout the season. So you freeze your keister off by the uh, by November, but, uh, you know we're going to start out freezing and, and warm up gradually, hopefully. Fingers right.
4: Absolutely, absolutely. Yeah, I think that
3: – go ahead. That's the tricky part is no one knows the what's next part. Uh, no one knows when the vaccines are going to come, that, how quickly they're going to get disseminated. We have Fred Brown on at the end of the show, and he always scares the pants off us because he's an epidemiologist. But uh, this may be the new normal for a couple of years. Who knows, you know, so –
4: and Mike, that's the point that we're trying to say is Dr. Mark Girl could have said, we're going to shut down completely. We're going to stay online. But he felt there was an opportunity for us to show our uniqueness as a private technological university. And that's what I believe we're doing. And yes, was something going to happen? Is someone going to get tested positive? All of that is yes, probably, most likely. But how, if we can approach it in a way that... Uh, provides us that opportunity to showcase who we are. Let's just do it. And that's what we're trying to do.
3: Okay. Got about a minute left. So I'll let you guys do the shameless plug part. Go ahead.
2: Okay. Lisa, if people want more information about attending Lawrence Technological University, where do they go?
4: I would go to admissions at LTU.edu. You can make appointments. Here's the other thing. We have tours every day and those things are packed and we have to social distance them. So, we're ready and willing to see students, ltu.edu. Uh, you can apply. You can inquiry. There's buttons that pop up immediately, and we're happy to have you uh, look at who we are and what we are and showcase the greatest uh, private technological university, frankly, in Michigan, if not the world. Well, we just, made
2: the, we just made the list of 386 best That's colleges great. in the United States. And That's right. There's an awful lot of pretty famous names that didn't, so I, I was glad to see that.
4: Yep. We rock. <laughs>
2: <Okay>. <laughs> well, you can also go to ltu.edu and uh, just enter in the search bar "future students" and you'll yes. find a whole wealth of resources there. Yes. Lisa Kiawa, associate—is it assistant provost? Associate provost. Associate provost for uh, enrollment management and outreach at Lawrence Technological University. Once again, that's ltu.edu. Thanks for being with us today.
4: Thank you so much, Mike. Thank you. You guys have a great day. How okay, you too,
2: Lisa. and we'll be back in just a minute with another segment of the M Squared Tech.
5: What do you get at Lawrence Technological University? Everything. Great labs and studios, supportive professors, plus a full campus life, NAIA athletics, and all the software you need to succeed. Be smart. Be more. At LTU, possible is everything.
1: Salaries of Lawrence Tech grads are among the highest of any university in America. Plan a campus visit to meet with counselors, faculty, and coaches. Why wait? Find out more at
6: ltu.edu. Lawrence Technological University graduates earn a degree and a higher starting salary. In fact, when it comes to earning potential, the Brookings Institution ranks LTU fifth among U.S. colleges and universities. Be enriched. Be more. At LTU, possible is everything.
1: Salaries of Lawrence Tech grads are among the highest of any university in America. Plan a campus visit to meet with counselors, faculty and coaches. Why wait? Find out more at ltu.edu. Hey, it's Matt Rausch. And Mike Brennan.
2: And we're back with a familiar face in another segment of the M Squared TechCast. We have with us today former Michigan Governor Rick Snyder. Um, and Rick, I gather you want to talk about entrepreneurship today.
7: Yeah, well, it's great to be with you. I mean, I've worked with both you guys long before I was governor. So it's great to continue this dialogue. And if you think about it, entrepreneurship is something we really need to encourage during this challenging period. The, the COVID-19 pandemic pandemic has changed all our lives in so many ways but one of the things we have to look at is is one of the solutions is innovation and that's where we need tech entrepreneurs to continue on in so many different areas um, and it's there are new unique challenges that they face even in their positions but we we need to work through these because innovation's the answer I mean that's where we need a vaccine for example.
3: Yeah, hopefully uh, soon, but I don't know when that's going to be. We have Fred Brown, who's an epidemiologist, also lives in Ann Arbor, comes on in our fourth segment today. And he's coming on every week to kind of keep us up to speed because he's working with a number of states and governments around the world. And so he's pretty informed. But it seems like, yeah, the vaccine is the real key to getting back to whatever the new normal is going to be.
7: Yeah, but there's a lot of pieces to this. It was interesting, um, as the COVID crisis really started happening and we started seeing how serious it was. There are some good innovation opportunities even coming out of that, though. I had the opportunity to work with some U of M doctors, for example, uh, that were working on a device called VentMe, which is about how you could double the capacity of a ventilator by safely splitting it. And that was exciting to see. And that's something that was done out of necessity. I mean, they were on the front lines of seeing terrible things going on. And the question is, how do you do something about it? And they weren't the only ones. Actually, I had the opportunity to get involved in a couple of forums. And Mike, you've been involved in a lot of those kind of forums where you bring people together um, with new ideas. And and as you know, um, it's one of those things that many of these ideas may not end up going anywhere on their first pass. But you never know. They may come back years later or they may have value in a different setting. And that's what we're seeing today. I mean, like we're doing this video conference. I mean, that used to be a rare thing. How many video conferences do you do a day
3: now? Yeah, too many. I do three shows (laughs) a week. Uh, So this is one, and I do one on Wednesday and one on Thursday. And I'm not going to fill in Tuesday and Friday because I need a little downtime. But, yeah, this is the new normal for communications. But everything is moving to video right now. I mean, uh, I I read all the studies on social media. And if you're not doing video, you're not being seen on social media. So you got to do it.
7: Yeah, well it's important to have that interaction. And again, that's where it's it's the next best thing to being there in person. Um and that's what we all found. I mean, my biggest challenge now though is there's so many different services. I, how many different applications have you had to download depending on who you're talking to?
3: Right. Yeah. Yeah. So Zoom let's, is let's just talk the a little bit most popular, but there's dozens of other ones too.
2: Yeah. I I'd like to talk a little bit about how entrepreneurs get get financed, <laughs> how innovators get financed. I know Back in the 90s, when I was a finance writer at Cranes, Mary Kramer asked me to write, uh, to, to do a Cranes list of all the venture capital firms in Michigan. And I told her, well, the, the good thing about that is that it won't take up much space in the magazine, uh, because back then there wasn't much in the way of venture capital. Think, things have gone from awful to at least mediocre, maybe more than mediocre now in Michigan, would you say? I mean, what's what's the current status of angel investing in venture capital in Michigan?
7: I think Michigan's come light years. I mean, we've come a long way. Are we uh, California or uh, uh, Silicon Valley or Boston yet? No. But as a practical matter, I think we're clearly kind of in that next tier of um, jurisdictions and states in terms of what's going on. And it's something that takes time to build. Uh, And that's good economic development. I've been doing economic development work and venture work for decades in some capacity. And it takes 10 and 20 years. That's what people don't realize. It doesn't happen overnight um, because it's not about having just personalities. Like you said, Matt, you it was a short list back then. I was on that list. It was that short. And uh, I think you probably could have had uh, you know, a couple of inches of lines and that was about it. But now if you go, there's a significant list. Because it's really, I, I define it as how do you go from the founder effect where you had people doing it to actually having it have its own organic life. And it's not dependent on people anymore, but there's an ecosystem that's been created. And we still need to nourish that. Um, if you look at it, we've had some great gains, particularly in the med bio field. That's done very well in IT. I mean, these are traditional strengths of Michigan.
3: Yeah. And and, uh, it's been interesting, for instance, uh, in terms of angel investor groups, there's more than a dozen now. And the Michigan Angels, which is, of course, based in Ann Arbor, has more than 150 members. And when I left the West Coast in 1995 to come back to work at the free press, like Matt said, we didn't have hard. There might have been one or two groups. And then, of course, we've got a lot of venture capitalists that at least have an office or a one-person office or something here in the state, which is, I mean, like you say, in 20 years, it's come a long ways.
7: Yeah, you put it in context, because I, I one of the things I was proud to be part of before I became governor was helping create Ann Arbor Spark. And if you think about it, that was just a number of us coming together. The university was a great partner, um, starting an organization that now I haven't been involved with them directly for a number of years. I I go to their programs when I can. But if you look at it, they've become a major force in terms of entrepreneurship and innovation. And it's not just the Ann Arbor area. I mean, there's good things. Detroit's comeback has really caused a creation there. Grand Rapids um, has done fabulous things. And um, Invest UP is a group that came along and are now doing some exciting things up in the Upper Peninsula. So it's not exclusive. I mean, the main thing we need to continue to do, though, is keep the networking going. Um, Because, again, too often we think we're on an island and we need to reach out and figure out how to work together. And we need to continue um, creating more and more serial CEOs. In addition to the funding thing, we're now getting mature enough where you have people now that have taken and grown companies. They've had those companies get acquired um, and they've done it over again. I mean, yet Tim Mayle been with Asperion. He's been involved in a couple of Spirions. You got guys like Jeff Williams that have done three or four companies. Uh, those are great resources that we need to replicate more often. Of people that show that skill set, of they're really good at saying, "Okay, you got a company in this position. They know how to grow."
3: Yeah, Doug Sung would be another one. Uh, he's done quite well for himself over the years. So uh, made a few bucks off his last deal.
7: <laughs> yeah. Well, that's it. I mean, that's where you find the kind of the alumni club, so it was great i I watched other jurisdictions do this, and we probably should do more of it, where you sort of look at uh the friends and family network they have sort of gotten created, so what companies then spun off how many different future founders and entrepreneurs because they had the opportunity to learn in one place, they go do it again,
3: yeah. So what are you doing these days? Are you investing? Are you starting companies? I I know uh, you did a, a decompression there for a bit, and uh, I think you got that out of your system. But what's happening next?
7: Yeah, I'm just helping people. That's my title. As I like to say, I'm a helper now. And so I'm helping a couple of young companies uh, in terms of doing some work with them. I'm actually writing a Thursday column now myself. I just put it up on Facebook and LinkedIn to share some ideas. And uh, the, the other part is when I finished being governor, you had that list of things you sort of put off for years. Um, so I'm about 80% done with the a list of items I never thought I would get to, which is pretty good. So I'll catch up on that and then find some new things to do.
2: <laughs> and can I have a couple examples of the things that you'd put off?
7: Uh, actually, I uh, simple things i put off is a lot of it is just organizing your life, Matt. I mean, how yeah. often do you have all these files and records and stuff like that. The other joke is, is actually I got, Sue, we're updating our estate plan because it's that old thing. You never think of that because I last looked at it. It was from 1999. So our uh, oldest child was 11 and our youngest is now 24. So I think we need to get up to date.
3: Yes, yes, that's true. Absolutely. what do you think the state of technology is in Michigan as one who's been an uh, angel investor, a venture capitalist, uh, you know, you uh, former CEO of Gateway Computer? Yes, we remember all that stuff.
2: For, former former magazine publisher, too, which is yeah, magazine heart. publisher. I, I, yeah. I, I remember small times. That was that was a
7: great publication. Yeah, it was. Thank you.
3: So how would you assess where we're at and what do we still need?
7: Yeah, the part we still need is a technology we've always been strong at. Um, What we need to do are continue to grow. Again, these serial CEOs I've talked about is continuing growth and just letting people continue to develop and encouraging young people to be innovators. I mean, we're still getting around to that culture of saying it's not just about having founders, but having teams built. And so we need to work on building more teams of people that can bring good marketing skills, other skills. And we need to be louder and prouder. I still contend we're not loud enough about our successes. I mean, you mentioned Doug and Duo. That was wonderful for the state. I mean, that really helped us, you know, put another mark on that national VC map. So we need to get out and tell our story more. Um, Renaissance Venture Capital is a great illustration of a fund a fund that I think has done good about promoting venture capital in Michigan in so many different ways. My old partner, Chris Reisig, and Jeff Reinfeld are both there. So we need to continue that path. So there's not a light switch kind of answer. It's more watching this continuing development and having great places like Detroit come back, continue and places where people want to come and build companies.
3: I know one of the things that I think you're on the tail end of it, I think it was more the previous governor, but it was all those tobacco money that we got $50 million a year that the state was using to pump into businesses. Now, of course, I think that's all pretty much gone Do we need something like that where the state gets more heavily involved than they have been?
7: Um, I don't necessarily know if I think that's required. Because to be open with you, uh, governments are not good at picking winners and losers. That's (laughs) not a good strong suit for government. Uh (laughs) I think it's really helping create the infrastructure for these things to happen. Um, And that's where I think there's an opportunity. Again, if you look at the COVID crisis, I think this is a case where you're going to find people in New York, In the Bay Area, these big areas that look at Google and some of these companies saying they can work remotely now for the next year, essentially, if not longer. That's where we need to be drawing these people to Michigan. I mean, if you had a choice between being in a congested skyscraper versus being on the shoreline of a great lake, uh, which one are you going to choose? Um, I know, so know that
3: would choose Traverse City, so. Uh. Yeah,
7: yeah. <laughs> well, I think that's a, a big opportunity that we should be leveraging the great resources we have uh, to get people to learn how to do this more remotely and to work those places, because, again, I think they're great growth opportunities.
3: Yeah, and it's really having an impact on the office commercial office markets. So there's so many buildings now that are only partly full, or you know, however you want to say that. Uh, but uh, the people, companies are evaluating: Do I really need office space anymore when people can work from home? So
7: yeah, that dynamic has changed dramatically, and I don't think it's going to go back to just what it was before.
3: No. Yeah,
2: and and I I think you might start seeing more of what you see in what you saw in Midtown Detroit and Downtown Detroit. Or you have office space that's abandoned and is eventually converted to residential. I mean, you know, like the David Scott Building, places like that in downtown Detroit. I think you might start seeing some of that in suburbia too. So,
4: yeah,
7: I think you nailed that. I was talking to some real estate people recently, and that I believe was the trend to say instead of traditional office, it's going to be live workspace, where literally uh, you're going to maybe you have your apartment and then a connected office, um, and again get collections of those people doing it in that environment. I mean, cause that's where it's great what you can do now and the different ways you can communicate.
3: We've only got a little over a minute left. I know you do your Thursday column on Facebook cause I read that there. Uh, if someone wants to reach out to you, I know you don't want to give up your phone number or your email address necessarily, but have them contact Allison or what would you advise? Yeah,
7: Allison's great. She still runs my professional life and, a good spot's LinkedIn too. I'm on LinkedIn and I have a lot of connections there, so that's an easy one to connect. I've actually started the Thursday columns now a newsletter on LinkedIn.
3: Oh, okay, cool. All right, so Allison Scott, uh, I'll I'll uh, what what's her, I know I just I contacted her to reach out to you. So what's her email address again?
7: Yeah, it's Allison at RP Action A C T I O N dot Tech T E C H. Okay. I didn't want to be another com I had to be a dot-tech got of
3: to have course. some fun. Of course. And, and just before everyone goes, I want to blame everything on Rick in the sense of when I was at the Free Press trying to figure out what to do next, I met with him and he talked me into starting MITech News. So I blame you for that. <laughs>
7: <laughs> well, I'm, it's great to see success.
3: Yeah, I've been doing it for 20 years now. I, I don't know anything else, 20 years right? later, I yeah,
7: right. Yeah. <laughs> Well, all we right. just have different hair colors than we had back then.
3: Yes, it, I didn't have all this uh, traces of gray in mine. I think yours is a tad darker as well. well
7: I, I actually had hair back then. <laughs> well, it's great to be with you guys. I'm glad you're doing this show because, again, you're helping create that ecosystem for successful entrepreneurship and innovation.
3: All right, former Governor Rick Snyder, thanks for being with us. Maybe we can get you on the show again later this year. What do you think?
7: Oh, happy to be with you guys. We go all way right. back. Happy to well, keep that going.
3: Okay, thanks very much. So, we're going to take a quick commercial break and we'll be back with more of MITech TV. This is Mike Brennan and it's Matt Roush. And we hope you're watching live on Facebook.
5: What do you get at Lawrence Technological University? Everything. Great labs and studios, supportive professors, plus a full campus life, NAIA athletics and all the software you need to succeed. Be smart, be more. At LTU, possible is everything.
1: Salaries of Lawrence Tech grads are among the highest of any university in America. Plan a campus visit to meet with counselors, faculty, and coaches. Why wait?
6: Find out more at ltu.edu. Lawrence Technological University graduates earn a degree and a higher starting salary. In fact, when it comes to earning potential, the Brookings Institution ranks LTU fifth among U.S. colleges and universities. Be enriched. Be more. At LTU, possible is everything.
1: Salaries of Lawrence Tech grads are among the highest of any university in America. Plan a campus visit to meet with counselors, faculty, and coaches. Why wait? Find out more at ltu.edu. Hey, it's
2: Matt Rausch. And Mike Brennan. And we're back with another segment of the M Squared TechCast. We have longtime, gosh, I guess we could almost call her an M Squared TechCast contributor, you know, like they do on the cable news shows. Kathleen Norton-Shack is with us today, and she has a guest.
8: Thanks, guys, very much for this opportunity. Um, As I hinted last month, uh, when you had me on for our normal Women in Tech segment, um, I'd like to, this time, go, go out of the box, go out of my normal box, and segue to another topic for a variety of reasons. And that topic will be social media channels, the law, and the First Amendment, and some other things having to do with the law and technology. Um, As you know, Diva Tech Talk, which is my five-year passion project that I co-founded with Nicole Scheffler, took a small hiatus beginning in June, uh, which we will end in September for a variety of reasons. One of them was Nicole is about to have a baby in September, and she just wrote a chapter in a book, and she's busy with Cisco. Um, but on top of that, my interest, my, um, a lot of things were happening in my life. And one of them, my personal schedule, was severely impacted by something um, a venal SLAP, S L A P P lawsuit, in which, quite frankly, I was unjustly embroiled. SLAP, as I have come to learn, is an acronym for a strategic lawsuit against public participation. Uh, they are, by the way, illegal. In 30 of 50 states, but in our lovely state of Michigan, we haven't gotten around yet to banning them. Um, so, as I hinted last week, there's a last month, rather, there's a backstory. I live in Bloomfield Township, Michigan, and in this election year, two of the town's supposed leaders, its supervisor and treasurer, in a Machiavellian political move, chose to bring a $9 million slap. Against a social media channel called Next Door Neighborhood, for whom I am just one of hundreds of volunteers in Oakland County, because they lost a 2019 vote for tax funding and perceived that there was a growing body of opposition to their draconian tactics and non-transparent method of governing. And that, of course, is my opinion. But of course, I'm entitled to my opinion as a citizen and a taxpayer. As part of their political machinations, they named two townships uh, citizens in this egregious proceeding, and I was one of them. Every single assertion in the suit, which was filed in May 2020, about me was an outright lie. I've been paying taxes in Bloomfield Township for 34 years, and even though they get it right on the tax rolls, in the lawsuit, they couldn't even spell my name right. This just shows you how sloppy the whole thing was. So to say that this was extremely disturbing would be an understatement. That's the bad news. The good news is that this profound distress led my co-defendant, Valerie Murray, and I to brilliant legal counsel, my guest today, Brian Wassup. Brian is a partner, as you guys both know, at Warner, Door, Cross and Judd, and he's truly a futurist at heart. He's globally recognized as a thought leader in cutting-edge legal issues raised by such things as augmented reality and cloud-based emerging media channels. He regularly publishes blogs. He speaks on these topics to industry groups, legal seminars, and conferences across the country. He's also a published book author. I personally, once we found him, found his background and the interactions I was fortunate enough to have with him since May fascinating. And so, with your permission, I'm going to ask him to educate our audience just a little about his tech law specialties. So, thanks for joining us, Brian, and thanks for winning our case by getting this spurious slap suit dismissed on August 5th. Thank you.
0: Thank you, Kathleen. Uh, it's my pleasure, and I appreciate the opportunity to uh, to uh, be involved in this and and be uh, to contribute to vindicating these First Amendment rights uh, like we got the chance to, to do in this lawsuit. And, of course, thanks to uh, Mike and Matt for having me back on. Good to see you guys again. Yeah.
8: So, can we talk a little bit about your specialties? First of all, from Valerie's and my perspective. And by the way, my co-defendant was Valerie Murray, who's running as a Democrat for Bloomfield Township trustee, first time. Uh, she's not a politician. She's a first-time candidate. She has a strong long history in the township, and like an entire group of people who have become activists over the last 3 years, she saw a lot of things wrong. So, for the first time in her life, she's running for office. Um, so, Brian, we were very lucky that another friend referred us to you. Can you tell me why, from my perspective, you were the ideal lawyer to defend Valerie and I? Do you agree with me on that? And why would you say that was?
3: Yeah, I can't wait to hear this, but go ahead.
0: <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, you, you, as as we've well established, Kathleen, you are entitled to your opinion. And far be it, <laughs> far be it from ideal me lawyer. to... Uh, to restrain you from exercising it you, you you've uh, you've been gracious to uh, withhold your opinion from the public square during the pendency of this lawsuit and I know that was a challenge but uh, uh, you, you're, you're free to now but I, I so I would not go so far as to characterize myself as ideal I would say that I was uh, qualified and uh, certainly pitched myself as ideal to uh, to any potential candidates but in any event, um, I have been incredibly fortunate over my 20-year legal career thus far to have had the opportunity to work under the wings of uh, senior lawyers with uh, a lot of First Amendment and related, uh, not only experience, but litigation for me to work in and uh, and to gain that experience myself firsthand uh, in a number of different uh, FOIA and media law and first amendment and copyright related lawsuits and um you got that opportunity to build up that's not something that is uh, is a common specialty here in Michigan it might be in larger uh, media markets but uh here in Michigan uh, I've been fortunate enough to become one of a handful of lawyers that uh, that really have a resume in doing this kind of thing so
8: oh. I characterized you as a futurist and I really do believe that just based on our conversations and the background research I was able to do on you. Um, So tell me, what emerging technology have you been concentrating on lately from a legal perspective? In other words, I'm sure there are people besides me and Valerie and a lot of other people and a lot of other cases you've worked on um, that have legal implications that are directly related to technology. Can you talk a little bit about that with us?
0: Yeah, well, uh, Mike and Matt know this too because they've been good enough to have me on before to talk about some of this. And one area of uh technology that's really captured my fascination over the last decade is that of augmented reality. Uh, it goes by a few other names now, XR, mixed reality. Uh, there's there's more names than than uh, success stories so far in the in the industry, but it's one that has been bubbling up um slowly but surely over the last decade and really um is poised to launch us forward in order of magnitude um, expansion here in the very near future. And when I talk about augmented reality, I talk about the technology that uh, projects, or at least gives the illusion to the user of projecting digital data onto the physical world and allows us to interact with digital data as if it were there physically in front of us. And we see that sort of thing in movies all the time, going all the way back to movies like Terminator and. and minority report and things of that nature. But um, it's not something we necessarily recognize unless we stop to think about it. But, you know, there the the rumor mill always uh, always escalates this time of year before the the Apple technology show. about when Apple is going to come out with smart glasses like some other startup companies have done. And uh, the answer is soon. Uh, Apple and Google and Niantic and, uh, and other companies that are on the forefront of this sort of technology. Um are, uh, are, are poised to, to put our smartphones in our glasses. And that, I think, is, is something that's going to, to make a big impact in how we use technology.
8: So you probably haven't had a time, given your very busy schedule, to listen to any of our 100 or so Diva Tech Talk podcasts. But everybody who's been a, an interviewee for me, and these guys know it quite well, I always like to know the backstory. Why did you choose to specialize in technology law? And what do you think are the top three hot areas? You already talked about augmented reality and Google Glass. But what are the top three hot areas in addition to that that will inspire litigation as it relates to technology and or as it relates to freedom of speech?
0: All right. Well, real briefly on the background question, um, like I said, I got a really um, unique opportunity to be exposed to media type law. Um, but it became quickly apparent to me that uh, the the type of media that I kind of cut my teeth on representing, which was newspapers here in town, uh, uh, one of the biggest papers here and in, in, in media outlets here in town, um, people aren't going to buy newspapers very much longer. And that that has certainly become the case. And so I, I needed to direct my energy for the next you know, 20, 30 years of my career on, on media that was up and coming. And that's what led me to not only augmented reality, but other forms of digital media. I was back 10 years ago, um, one of the first lawyers to really jump on the bandwagon of social media, uh, w- as something that's, that, that, that had, uh, importance and would have, uh, a lot of legal consequences. That certainly has panned out in, in our case, among many others. Um, but looking forward to, to technology related litigation. So, um, as you know, Mike knows, uh, I, I handled a case a couple of years ago involving a uh, regulation in Wisconsin that, that attempted to regulate Pokemon Go and, and other location-based augmented reality games. And that turned out to be um, the first case to uphold First Amendment rights, specifically in the augmented reality space. And that was striking down that law as an unconstitutional restriction of speech in the augmented reality uh, arena. And that, that, already kind of broke the seal on, on litigation in that space but I think in terms of the rest of the broader augmented reality space I think advertising and and, and disputes over whether um, I can put my ad on your property or make it seem like it's on your property is is just something that that companies uh, speak to me about on a regular basis um, and and they're they're very um, sensitive to the idea that somebody else could uh, take you, make use of their physical space for digital advertising in ways that they don't approve of. So um, that is an area uh, that's an example of the 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 motto of following following the money, right if If people are putting money into advertising, their their commercial reputation is is very much something that is worth money to them. So it's something that is going to be worth fighting over in litigation. and that's so uh, it's augmented and digital um, advertising I think will lead to that sort of litigation. Uh, second, i'd I'd say privacy. None of this technology, whether it's it's on your face or in, in other sorts of displays, none of it really works without cameras. And so it, look at the number of cameras we have in society now compared to a generation ago. Uh, it's an order of magnitude higher. I think it will be another order of magnitude higher 10 years, 20 years from now. Um, the, the the ability to digitally surveil will only uh, increase. And so with that comes uh, disputes over privacy and the, the creepiness factor involved in that. I and you know now I'm starting to handle um, invasion of privacy claims with drones, with flying around with cameras, and you know, we're going to see much more of that sort of thing. And then the third is an area of law that um, kind of is another offshoot of of my specialty in media practice, and and it's one that I've had a chance to litigate and will only be litigated more. And that's an area of law called the right of publicity, which is uh, a, an individual person's Right to control the commercial exploitation of their identity or their likeness. That's something we see originally in billboard advertising, magazine advertising, that sort of thing. Now we see it all the time in social media contexts and in, in, in other digital forms. Because ultimately, you know, we are a social species, and we like to talk about ourselves and about each other. And so, uh, the expression that we're going to be publishing in the digital space. Uh, is going to be about ourselves and about other people. And so our ability to control the use of our likenesses, the use of our identities in that space is going to be uh, increasingly important and increasingly litigated over.
3: I'm afraid Definitely. we're going to have Yeah, go ahead, man. I was going to cut them out, too. So Yeah,
2: right. <laughs> Sorry, we've reached the end of the 15-minute segment. Um, obviously, we've got to have you both back for a half-hour segment sometime. Ah, uh, because this is a fascinating topic, and I didn't even get to ask the question that I wanted to ask about artificial intelligence and where you see that going as relates
3: to all this. Hey, we'll save that one for you, Brian, when you come back and tell us another, you know, brilliant
0: lawyer thing. So,
8: and where can people reach you, Brian?
0: <laughs> WNJ.com, Warner Norcross and Judd. That's my law firm.
8: And how about you? your book?
0: Book called uh, "Got <clears throat> Augmented Reality Law, Privacy, and Ethics." Also got a book uh, from a, a faith perspective called "What Would Jesus Post on Social Media,"
8: and they're available through Amazon. That's right. Excellent. Okay. All right.
3: Well, we have to. Uh, we're going to go to commercial. Thanks very much, Kathleen Brian, We'll get you back on the show here, to maybe in another month, and you can kind of continue. Yeah, thanks on. for
8: saving me nine million dollars, Brian.
3: Yes, that's a good thing, right? <laughs> I didn't have all right. anyway. Thank you all. <laughs> All right. Well, we'll be right back. This is Mike Brennan. And Matt Roush. And you've been watching MITech TV.
5: As a Lawrence Technological University graduate, you're not only marketable, you're worth more. Yes, more. According to Payscale.com, when it comes to graduate salaries, LTU is in America's top 100. Be invaluable. Be more. At LTU, possible is everything.
1: Salaries of Lawrence Tech grads are among the highest of any university in America. Plan a campus visit to meet with counselors, faculty, and coaches. Why wait? Find out more at ltu.edu.
5: What do you get at Lawrence Technological University? Everything. Great labs and studios, supportive professors, plus a full campus life, NAIA athletics, and all the software you need to succeed. Be smart. Be more. At LTU, possible is everything.
1: Salaries of Lawrence Tech grads are among the highest of any university in America. Plan a campus visit to meet with counselors, faculty, and coaches.
6: Why wait? Find out more at ltu.edu. Lawrence Technological University graduates earn a degree and a higher starting salary. In fact, when it comes to earning potential, the Brookings Institution ranks LTU fifth among U.S. colleges and universities. Be enriched. Be more. At LTU, possible is everything.
1: Salaries of Lawrence Tech grads are among the highest of any university in America. Plan a campus visit to meet with counselors, faculty, and coaches. Why wait? Find out more at ltu.edu.
5: As a Lawrence Technological University graduate, you're not only marketable, you're worth more. Yes, more. According to payscale.com, when it comes to graduate salaries, LTU is in America's top 100. Be invaluable. Be more. At LTU, possible is everything.
1: Salaries of Lawrence Tech grads are among the highest of any university in America. Plan a campus visit to meet with counselors, faculty, and coaches. Why wait? Find out more at ltu.edu.
3: Okay, a longer commercial break than what we typically have, but uh, LTU is thankful because we ran that ad about four times.
2: (laughs) (laughs) And we have with us today our resident epidemiologist and infectious disease expert, Fred Brown. Fred, we only have 15 minutes today, so we've got to keep it real tight. What's the latest in terms of the pandemic?
9: Well, of course, the big announcement uh, yesterday with Dr. with with, uh, with uh, President Trump, I almost said Dr. Trump, uh, with the uh, expansion, the emergency use authorization for, uh, for plasma therapy. And you remember that was one of the therapies that I thought early on was going to be helpful. Uh, and... Um, But I'm not sure about this particular use of the emergency use authorization. I'm a little bit concerned about it for some reasons. We can certainly go into that if you like.
3: Yeah, let's go into that because I'm sure that's on everyone's mind. And certainly during the Republican convention this week, I'm sure they'll be talking about that. So give us your perspective on this.
9: Yeah. So, I mean, it is not a knockout punch. It, what it what it means is that if you uh, are infected with COVID and you're hospitalized and having challenges, uh, what they've done is they've used uh, data from the Mayo Clinic. They had an ex- they, they, about 30, 37,000 total patients um, uh, across two thousand eight hundred different sites, and what they found was that if you uh, you know had a significant IgG or uh, significant component uh, of, uh, of of dose of of plasma therapy, then, uh, your survival rates, um, would, uh, be improved by about two and a half to 3%. So it's not a, a you know, it goes from, uh, your death rate goes from 8.5%, uh, from 11.2% to 8.5%, um, with significant amounts of plasma therapy. And there is a dose response that's, 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 you know, indicative of, uh, of some help. Unfortunately, what was quoted during the press release was a 35% reduction in, in, uh, in, in, overall, in overall death rate. And that's not right. <laughs> uh, the overall, de- the overall uh, you know, death rate reduction is only 2%. The relative reduction across across two pa- populations, both treated with plasma therapy, is about 35%. But don't forget, we didn't try it compared to nothing. And what's interesting is we have a results from clinical trials in both the Netherlands and China that indicate that uh, when you compare it to doing nothing, there is no statistical significance, sadly, and there is some risk of, of course, infection and other things as a result of, of going through a transfusion of with, with using, use, using a uh, uh plasma. I think, though, that if we do enough studies and we understand the dosing, that we will find some positive benefit. But I'm concerned for uh, about a couple of things. You know, I'm a drug developer, and what happens whenever you create, uh, whenever you say to people, it's now available commercially, but by the way, there's also a chance to take part in this clinical trial and you've got a 50% chance of either getting the the drug or not getting the drug, you know, people are going to say, give me the drug, forget the (laughs) the clinical trial. So the result of that is that, you know, our our chances of actually completing a lot of the trials that we have underway get significantly reduced. And there are a, a, a whole host of trials underway. There's probably 15, 20 trials that are properly, you know, uh, uh and statistically and methodologically correct in order to actually determine whether this is a case or not. Right now we're just using anecdotal evidence of people saying that guy looks pretty sick you better give him some some, some drug um, and then post and then afterwards saying, oh we had some success. That's not a prospective controlled randomized clinical trial which had a placebo and and, and, and control group uh, that's that, that is what we really look for uh, to make the standard uh, work. And so the result of that is that if you look, I, you know, as doctors, what you do is you go to the Infectious Disease Society of America and you look at their their, their treatment protocols, and you go to the NIH and look at their treatment protocol, protocols, and the, neither of those societies, uh, or what, which doctors actually follow, have changed their treatment protocol recommendations. And that's And that's because we just don't have the evidence right now that we would normally ask as physicians to have in order to treat uh, the, uh, people with this kind of a therapy.
2: One thing I wanted to ask you about, Fred, uh, in the scary headline department is we learned last night um, from the New York Times, authorities in Hong Kong have reported their first case of reinfection. Uh, somebody had it before, got it, had the antibodies and then got it again. So what does that tell us?
9: Yeah. I, uh, so it is possible. It is possible, and, and uh, that it is reinfection, and we're, we're still struggling with it. We, we you know, we we saw that initially in Korea, where, where they had a, a significant number of cases called "quote unquote" reinfected. We think a lot of those were just. Uh, Sequestered and, and, and kind of uh, uh, disease that was hiding away in various locations that we hadn't, you know, tested and were or sheltered from, the, from from a blood test or a saliva test, and that happens often. So it comes back. Well, we're finding that this is a very pernicious disease, and that you can get you know low levels of titer for a long time that are undetectable, and then pop up you know two three months later. Uh, so we're not sure if it's re- if it's reinfection. That's really disappointing because it means that antibody levels of people who have been infected aren't sufficient to uh, prevent you from getting the disease again. And that's what we're really looking for uh, in effective vaccines. So that would suggest that a a vaccine might not be fully effective and that it might not be, uh, have a very long duration right now. Our best guess is that you've got some protection for, for three months. That's as long as you've been able to to test so far because the antibody is still novel. If we're like MERS and SARS, Um, then you could get as much as two to four years of protection. That's what we're really hoping for uh, with a vaccine. But those kinds of results indicate that's doubtful for this particular, uh, for COVID-19, sadly.
3: So it keeps getting back to the vaccine. Is there any vaccine update you can give us? I know it's only been a week, but I mean, has anything changed?
9: Oh, lots! <laughs> so, believe it or not, last time you know, two weeks ago, when the last time it was reported, I and you're watching the enrollment rates of this vaccine go up, right? And two weeks ago, when we talked about this last time, there were um, f- about forty-five hundred people enrolled in the uh, in the thirty-thousand-person study from for uh, 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 for, um, for Moderna, and about twenty. I think it was 2,600, 2,750, as I recall, uh, enrolled in Pfizer. Believe it or not, collectively, Moderna and Pfizer now have enrolled 25,000 patients. Wow. So it's gone up 20,000 patients in two weeks. That's remarkable. I mean, I mean, I I do a lot of work in enrollment management uh, for for clinical trials. I mean, to get twenty thousand in two weeks is on. I mean, that's just unheard of. <laughs> it's a huge. <laughs> they're, they're they're out there, and people are act, you know eager to, to 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 volunteer, and they're 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 recruiting heavily, which is great.
3: Good, uh, and, uh, and clearly, until we do get a, an effective vaccine, whatever that might be. Whatever the new normal is going to be, we don't even know that. I mean, do you suspect even if we get a vaccine that we will never going to go back to the way everything was before the pandemic? Do you think there'll still be changes?
9: Oh, yeah. Yeah, I, I think, sadly, I think what's going to happen is that our initial vaccines will be you know, partially effective, our, and, and we'll have some therapies that are partially effective. But we're going to have to uh, continue to monitor the disease and manage the disease, um, you know, patient by patient, if we're lucky. If not, we're, we're doing it on a population basis right now, but patient by patient, uh, probably for at least 10 years. I don't see us going back to a, a quote-unquote normalcy without, until we get a fully sanitizing vaccine um, or a significant uh, change in the virulence of the, uh, uh, of the disease. That's what killed off uh, quote unquote killed off Spanish flu was that it actually mutated enough that it became kind of part of the endemic flu uh, problem, not, not, not something special. Uh, and if that happens with COVID, if there's something that happened with the, the, the nature of the virus itself that we don't really control, frankly, uh, then uh, that, then, then, then that could cause us to go back to normal. More likely we will have a sanitizing vaccine. My, my sense is that's at least 10 years away. Wow. Yeah, so it's a ways. We have a ways to go. And I think that means a lot of testing, a lot more testing. Probably what will, ha- what will happen is we'll test ourselves every day, um, you know, uh, self-administered, very rapid, very inexpensive. Uh, and those tests will be coming out in the next three to five months. And everybody should, you know, be, be on the lookout for them and, and, and start trying them out. Uh, because the, that's
2: the uh, so that's the saliva test you're talking about that I've heard about this week.
9: That's right, the saliva test. Uh, there's one in Boston. There's one in Yale. There's one in Stanford. They're all uh, starting to look relatively interesting. What we're finding is that we need to have in order to do this kind. Of, what's happened is, our society just doesn't lend itself well. To centralize clinical testing and all the transport and the slow turnaround times uh, and the high cost of tradition of our current testing infrastructure, so what we actually look for is disruptive technologies, and the disruptive technologies that are out there include, you know, breathing technologies coming out of uh, of, of Israel uh, called. Uh, Na nasal, as I recall. Uh, there's a there's a, a group there's there's the E group in Boston that's using uh, strips of, of of silver coating, silver coated paper uh, that, that 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 changes quite sensitively to to uh, to drug. There's a special LISPR Lisper technology that's coming out of Stanford that's very that's actually probably you know probably going to be the most likely candidate uh, for a, a, in a longer term scenario, uh, and then. There are instances where you can use existing technology with very, very fast turnarounds. That's what's happening at University of Illinois. They've got a full setup of, you know, several million dollar um, uh, PCR, te- PCR machines at University of Illinois that turn, you know, that are able to test 10,000 people a day. You need two of them, three of them, three of them, uh, 20 morning, 24 hours. And that costs $10 a test. And you've got to be right on site with that, with that technology. What we need to have something that's instant, self-administered. Uh, that's quite accurate to the PCR level if possible, uh, very fast. Uh, so instant means less than 10 minutes, I would say. Um, and, um, uh, and, um, uh, so those, and, 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 cheap, we have to get kind of below a dollar, a dollar,
2: that yeah, all that.
9: <laughs> that part of it. Yeah. yeah. Uh, so, and, and that right now, if you look at all the tests, nothing is available, uh, right now that we have that, that, that are all three of those things. So you got your, uh, all five of those uh fit all those five of those criteria so we're gonna have to actually look for new ways of testing and those testing those those systems are coming out as i said in three to six months
3: and then finally i will rise we ran out of time i know one of the things we were going to talk about and now i've got to put that link up is how to properly wash your hands right Uh, i don't know if you have that link available you can show us. i do i
9: i I think i've got it let me take a look if i can find it.
3: Nothing else. That's what we can do right now is wash our yeah. hands properly, right?
2: It's it's one of the tricks. So uh, we well, basically have to wash like you're prepping for surgery, right? You have to wash like the doctors do before surgery. <laughs> well, there are two levels of washing. There are two levels. Of, uh, can you see
9: my screen? Yeah. Yes. There are yep. two levels of washing. One is clean, and one is surgical. Surgical actually means you know septic level capability. That's a two-minute wash. It's up your sleeves and everything. We're just talking about clean levels of of of, of hand washing, which uh, you want to first you wet your hands with water so that you get the then you then then you put your soap on it. It should be about a teaspoon of soap. Generally, you can look at the instructions. That's about right. Uh, it's better probably for liquid soap than, 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 than normal soap. It doesn't really matter. It doesn't really matter if it's antibiotic or not either, as it turns out. Everything kills it, uh, kills this virus pretty easily. You want to rub your hands together around the palm, as like it shows, right? Then you want to get the backs of your fingers, in, in between your fingers. Then you want to scrub your palms. And you want to get your thumb, and you want to go down your wrists, because everything that's exposed is exposed to droplets. Then you want to rinse your hands with water. That's really important, because what the soap does, hydrophilic and hydrophobic interactions is it pulls the pulls the, the, the virus away from the oils in your in your skin uh, with a lot of uh, rinsing off rinse off for everyone says 20 seconds do it for 30 seconds if you don't have any soap then antiseptic is okay the, 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 the antiseptic uh, uh, cleanser and alcohol level should be above 70% it's not the same as hand washing hand washing is better uh, when you dry your hands use a disposable, paper towel don't uh, that 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 that's that's not exposed to the water and that you can't sneeze on and then use that same disp- the, the same towel to turn off the water open the garbage can put it put it in and and, and, and after you op- after you've opened the door to eggs the bathroom and uh, you should probably be doing this five times a day or so if you're at an office a- a- and do it every time you've touched something that's a surface that's frequently uh, touched so high high touch surfaces after you've shaken somebody's hand after you sneezed or coughed yourself and certainly after you go to the bathroom that's that's sort of the way to do it uh, and what you'll find is that the, what people forget the biggest areas of forgetfulness are your the, the palms inside your palms tips of your fingers and around your thumb uh, are areas uh, and in between your fingers are the ones that people forget. Usually what this does is it'll reduce the uh, uh, possibility of infection by about 23 to 48%. So good, good reduction. Don't forget, you know, kind of this touching, you touch your face 15, 15, 16 times an hour, try to reduce that if you can, by using something that's perfumed Uh, reminds you, you know, I've got something close to my face again, try to uh, use a soap that has uh, some humectants and, um, uh, and some, um, emollients in it humectants are things like glycerin honey and those kinds of things emollients are things like a- aloe those replace the water after because uh, you have high alcohol t- content reducing the oils in your skin cause dryness especially if you're washing five times a day so those are some of the hints i've got for you
3: all right now we're going to post this link uh, when we put uh, fred's video up online we'll have the link there too so you can take a look at it make sure you're doing it properly
9: Yep, this is the WHO and CDC official uh, official diagrams. On all, it's up on all the labs, so that's what we use.
3: All right, and that's Fred Brown, our epidemiologist. He's on with us every week, uh, and, uh, and 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 uh, updates us, and hopefully doesn't scare us too much. But this is really, I wouldn't say wouldn't say a scary time, but it's a very cautious time, right?
9: It is and i and I added that to the mask stuff if you touch the if you touch your face mask, that's where all the droplets are. wash your hands afterwards if you t- if you've taken off your mask properly, take it off from the sides one last uh, one last reminder so uh and you'll you'll kill off about you know uh, with an average hand washing you'll kill off about sixty percent of the germs if you do it this way, you'll kill off ninety nine percent of the germs especially you with a thirty second rinse
3: okay fred brown dot right, com I'm sorry, man. I stepped on you there.
2: That's all right. Well, we'll have to leave it there for now. We'll be back again next Monday at 2 p.m. Eastern time with another edition of the M Squared TechCast at MITechnews.tv. For right now, it's Matt Rausch. And Mike Brennan. And you've been watching at MITechnews.tv, Facebook Live, and hopefully a whole bunch of other places. Have a great week, everybody.
1: Thanks for listening to M Squared TechCast, a live internet radio show offering.